Amen. Hey, good to see you this morning. Good to see everyone. If we've not met, I'm Brian McCoy. I'm one of the pastors here. Dennis Newkirk is our interim pastor for preaching these days, and he was with his family in California this week enjoying that. I think there's close to 30 of them all told, and they had a great time on the beach, and he'll be back next Sunday to preach. We're going to continue this morning our series of messages this summer on different characters throughout the Bible. In fact, most of them, all of them are in the Old Testament, and so today we're going to talk about Esther the Queen. The title of the series is uh, Prophets, Patriarchs, Rulers, and the Thief. And so we're going to file Esther under the, under the heading of rulers, all right? And you're going to open your Bible to Esther chapter 4. Esther might be a little bit of an obscure book to some of you, but you can find it there in the Old Testament. If you open your Bible to the center, you'll find the Psalms, and then come back to your left, and you'll find Esther in there, all 10 chapters. Esther chapter 4, it's on page 412 if you're using the Bible there in the, in the pew rack. I said that Esther might be a little bit of an obscure book, uh, for some people, there are some things that you may or may not know about the book of Esther in general. For instance, did you know that there are no miracles in the book of Esther? Yeah, no miracles. There's no, uh, there's no parting of the seas. There's no pillar of cloud or pillar of fire. There, there are no angels holding the jaws of lions shut. There, there just aren't any miracles in the book of Esther. It's very different from many books in the Bible. Did you also know that in Esther, there's, there's no mention of the temple in Jerusalem, no sacrifices, no mention of worship in the book of Esther. There's no mention of the law of God in the book of Esther. In fact, there's no mention of God at all in Esther. His name ap never appears, not one time. Uh, it, it's a little bit unusual. If you read through Esther in one sitting, and you could do that really easily, you might get to the end of it for the first time and think, why is this book in the Bible at all? It's not readily apparent, but just because God is hidden doesn't mean he's missing from the story, that he's absent from the story altogether. In fact, if you read the book of Esther in the context with the rest of the Bible, which is what you should always do, anytime you decide, I'm going to read through this book of the Bible, remember where it sits in context to the rest of the Bible. The Bible is a story. It's going somewhere. It's telling us something, and every book matters. And so when you read the book of Esther, you see something very interesting, or I should say you should see something very interesting. It's not apparent, but it's there. And that's this, that all of the covenant promises God made to Abraham and David all of those unconditional promises he made, they're all in jeopardy in the story of Esther. The promises that God would gather for himself a people and that through that people he would raise up one who would be the Messiah and save his people from their sins. Those promises are threatened. Will they come to pass or not? The reader is left to think about those and ponder those questions. But one other thing you see in this book is that God is faithful to his promises to keep them. You see the providential hand of God in preserving his people, in protecting his people, in saving his people, and defeating their enemies. And he does it all through this woman, Esther the queen. Who is Esther the queen? As you read through chapter two, you get introduced to her pretty readily, and we learn that she's a young Jewish woman. She's a young Jewish woman. She is uh, named Hadassah, 
by her parents. That's her Jewish name. It means myrtle. But she's taken the name Esther. It's a Persian name. She's done that because that's where she's grown up. And if you remember some Bible history, a little bit of history for a moment, uh, the Jews in the southern kingdom in Judea and Jerusalem, they were conquered by the Babylonians. They were carried off into captivity. But years later, the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and they became the new overlords of all the Jews who are in exile far from their homeland. So she has this Persian name, Esther. Somewhere in her past, probably when she was younger, her parents died there in Persia. And Esther is adopted. She's taken in by her father's nephew, her cousin, a man named Mordecai. And the Bible tells us in chapter 2 that Esther is a beautiful woman. That's important. Because in chapter 1, we meet King Ahasuerus. I practiced that all week. I challenge you to an Ahasuerus duel, pronouncing the name of that dude. He's the king of Persia, right? And he throws a banquet like a, only a king can. It lasts for six months. It says it right in the text, 180 days of partying. It's a big deal. And he decides he wants to call his queen to, to present her before all of his guests because she is a good-looking woman. And he wants everybody to see her, but she's not going to have it. And she refuses his summons, and he gets ticked off of her, at her, and so he, he fires her as queen. He can do that. He's the king. So she's out of a job. Now what's he going to do? He's got a harem full of women, but his advisors advise him to hold a beauty pageant and find a new queen for himself, which, to a prideful, egotistical potentate, sounds like a great idea. And so he does that, and Esther is swept up in the process of gathering all the young eligible virgins, as it were, in the kingdom. And they bring her into the palace to compete for the position of queen along with many others. But before she goes in, her cousin Mordecai gives her some advice. In fact, he commands her. He says, conceal your identity as a Jew. Tell no one. And into the palace she goes. And after about a year, her turn comes to go into the king. And she goes. And that night she wins his favor, and the next day Ahasuerus crowns Esther queen of Persia. In chapter 3, we meet another person. His name is Haman. He is second in command, really. He's the most trusted advisor to the king. He hates the Jews, and he hates Mordecai in particular. And he manipulates king to really issue an order for the annihilation of all the Jews in the kingdom. This is a big kingdom. Get it in your head in, in a map. It goes from India all the way across to Ethiopia. All of the Jews inhabiting all those places where the Persians have allowed them to live, they are under a death sentence. Of course, Esther the queen is a Jew. And she's right there in the palace. And the king doesn't know she's a Jew. And she doesn't know there's been a death decree ordered for her people. But her cousin Mordecai knows. And that's where we enter the story here in chapter 4, verse 1. Let's look at it together. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud, bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. That's something that he would do on a regular basis, actually. He was, he was a known person there. But it says he went to the king's gate, but no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes and you can imagine 
why that would be. And Esther's young women, when they and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. Why? Because her cousin is at the gate in sackcloth. What's up with that? She doesn't understand. She sends garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off the sackcloth, but he won't accept them. Then Esther calls for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and, he ordered, and she ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what is this, why is this. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree in Susa for their discretion that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go into the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther said to Hatak, Said, spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go back to Mordecai and say this, all the king's servants and the people in the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king without being called, there's but one law to be put to death except to those whom the king extends the golden scepter so that he may live. In other words, the general rule is go to the king without being summoned, you die. Occasionally, exceptionally, someone gets to see the golden scepter and they live. And then she goes on, but as for me, I have not been called to come to the king for 30 days. When you consider this, and we'll read through the rest of the chapter in a moment, but when you look at this, what is the big idea that you see rising up out of this text that needs to be applied to all of our lives? The, the thing that really is facing all of us, and I think it's this, that God providentially positions his people to face defining moments and he calls us to die to ourselves and act in faith for his glory and our good. Everybody in the room knows what a defining moment is. We've all faced them. We know what they are. And this is it. God providentially positions his people to face defining moments. And he calls us to die to ourselves and act in faith when we do for his glory and our good. In the first five verses, every Jew in the empire knows about this death order. But Esther is clueless. She lives in the protective bubble of the palace where no bad news or anyone dressed in sackcloth can go. And at the same time, she has been concealing her identity as a Jew, as one of God's people. She's hiding in plain sight. So why would anyone in the palace even think that there would be a need to tell her that there's a death sentence over her head? To hide, uh, why, why, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of attention in this story and we have to pick it up. And, and Esther is not easy to work through because there are moral ambiguities all over the place. Should Mordecai have hidden her before he allowed her to be taken into the palace? Should she have even gone in to the king, this unbeliever? Should she have said yes to marriage to this pagan man? Esther is not in an easy position. She's in a difficult place, and many of God's people have found themselves in similar circumstances then and now, and many of them have made different choices than Esther. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were all captives of the Babylonians. Joseph was a slave in Egypt. They all faced defining moments where the choices were life or death, just like Esther. But when the choices aren't easy and you choose to go with the flow, 
you choose to kind of drift along and be quiet and, and go along the same way that the world goes, when you continue to do that, before long you find yourself separated, isolated from God's people and further and further out of touch with God himself. Just like Esther, isolated in that palace. In verses six through eight, Mordecai gives her all the evidence that she needs to understand this decree that has gone out, that all of the Jewish people are under a sentence of death. He begs her to ask the king's favor. And in verses 9 through 11, she says this is risky. To, to go into the king without being summoned is death. Everybody knows Mordecai as if he didn't know. She's informing him. The law forbids it. I've concealed my identity. That complicates it. This guy is impulsive, this king. That's going to endanger me. And by the way, he hasn't asked for me in 30 days. We say there's a problem. It's easy to see why Esther would be hesitant to say yes to this. And you remember the tension. She's in a position of royalty, but how did she get there? She got there through marriage to an unbeliever and by concealing everything distinctly Jewish about herself for five to six years. That's the life she's been living. So maybe she's not the right mediator for her people. A little point of application perhaps as you read through the story and you think about it here, have you ever started to list the reasons why you may not be suited, that you're not the right person for whatever opportunity God might be placing before you? Have you ever done that, started to make a list of all the deficiencies in you, all the disqualifications, all the reasons why it couldn't possibly be you? Rather than gazing on God's sufficiency, depending on his enabling grace. You can understand if Esther had asked, God, can you really, can you really use me in the face of everything that I've done? in the face of everything that I haven't done that I should have done, God, can you really use me? And if you follow her story all the way to chapter 10, I think the evidence of Esther is that yes, God can use all kinds of sinners. In his providence, he's chosen to do that. Why? Well, it's the only material he has on earth to work with. We're all sinners. And he chooses to do it that way. And then in verses 13 and 14, we haven't gotten there, but Mordecai sends an answer back to Esther the queen. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Esther, be clear about this. There is no safety in the palace for you. It doesn't matter that you're the queen. You're a Jew. And then he goes on to say this, look at this. If you keep silent at this time, if you don't go in, if you don't say anything, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. God's name is not mentioned here. But again, reading Esther in the context of the rest of the scripture, for me, I see this as a great statement of faith. Because where in the world else is, is, is deliverance and relief gonna come for the Jews except from God? I don't know what was in Mordecai's mind, but when I look back from my spot here on this side of the cross and the resurrection, this is a statement of faith. It's very much like Abraham, right? Dennis taught, it that, taught us that last week. He's got, he's got his son, his only son, the son of promise, Isaac, and Abraham goes to the top of Mount Moriah, and what does he do? He lifts the knife to execute his son because God had commanded it, and why did he do that? Because he believed God could raise him from the dead if necessary. Esther, you may say nothing, but relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from some other place. 
And then look at what he says. But you and your father's house will perish. That seems contradictory, does it not? How do you wrestle with that? All of the, even if you say nothing, Esther, the Jews, relief and deliverance for them will come. But not for you, not for your father's house. Why is that? I believe it's because Esther has two identities. She is a Jew, ethnically, but she is Jewish spiritually. She has these two identities and she cannot deny her place among the people of God without cutting herself off from them completely. This is when her two identities collide in the story. It's as if Esther is standing in front of a mirror and she has her royal robes on, but looking back at her is Hadassah, that young Jewish woman from five to six years earlier. Hadassah, the name given to her by her parents that comes along with a spiritual lineage. If she remains Esther, if she stays quiet, if she tries to hide in the supposed safety of the palace, the name Hadassah will be lost to history. Her father's spiritual line will end with him and she will be no longer really truly one of God's people. In verse 14, what does is, what is Mordecai go on to say to her? One final challenge, and who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe the most famous verse in the entire book. He's saying, this is your defining moment, Esther. Who knows whether or not you've been placed here for such a time as this. This is a Jewish woman who is the queen of Persia. How did that happen? Not by chance. The death decree occurred by chance. It occurred by the casting of lots, the purr. Esther is the queen of Persia by the providential hand and work of God Almighty. To the eyes of everyone around her, she is a Persian. She could leverage her resources as queen. She could threaten. She could get out of almost any kind of trouble she might be facing. But if she makes that choice, she's on her own, right? If she makes that decision, she's on her own. Instead of acting in faith... She'll be dependent on her own wits and her own beauty and her own resources. But there's a price for faithlessness. If she appears uninvited, there's a good chance she dies. If she trusts the palace to protect her, she might survive. But that faithless choice will bring on a different kind of death. Follow this. You cannot refuse to die to yourself and act in faith when you face a defining moment and not reap the consequences of that kind of sin. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I am talking about a dullness of heart, a, 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 a lack of joy, a loss of it really, a spiritual apathy that starts to seep into your soul, even a sense of cynicism that creeps over your mind and your heart when you start to behave this way, when you start to compromise and live outside of your convictions. And all of those things will push you further and further away from the people of God and out of touch with God himself. Away from the abundant life that God means for you to live in Christ, even in the midst of difficult moments, even in the midst of defining moments when the choices are not easy, when they're hard. Because there's this promise that in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's not just an eschatological promise. That's just not a promise for when Jesus returns. We can live in that right now in Christ. So what is your defining moment this morning? What are you facing? 
It's when you're faced with a choice to compromise or lose the respect of your coworkers because maybe the conversation has turned in such a way and you know that you need to say something about a Christian worldview and what God is doing in the world and maybe you need to speak the gospel so you gotta choose. Am I gonna compromise or lose the respect of my coworkers by speaking up for my faith? It's when you're faced with the choice to, to compromise or to maybe lose your job because you know they've asked you to do unethical things and you've kind of gone along with it. But now for whatever reason, there's a tipping point and you've decided, I don't know that I can do this, but it might mean losing your job and you need a job, right? There's a mortgage, there's kids in school. What will you do? It's a defining moment when you face the choice to compromise or lose a relationship because you know you can't stay in that relationship. Am I gonna compromise or will I lose that relationship? Will I compromise or lose that spot on the team? This is a defining moment and when you face a defining moment, think about this, when you face them, th there are things that you're wrestling with internally. What do I hope to gain by my decision and what am I afraid to lose through my decision? Jesus spoke to this. Look at what he said. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And what will a man give in return for his soul? That's where Esther was at. She wanted to save her life. She wasn't yet so uh, moved by the lives of her people, but she wanted to save her life. She wanted the whole world. But Jesus says, you can't hang on to your life that way and expect to gain anything. You're a loser. You've got to lose your life for my sake. And then you'll find profit. Then you'll have all that you need. God providentially positions his people to face defining moments. And he calls us to die to ourselves and act in faith for his glory and our good. You know, defining moments, they, they do two things simultaneously, right? They do two things simultaneously. They, they, they expose who you are and they also shape your character. Because if you never faced a defining moment, you might just go on and on and on, year after year, living a compromised lifestyle. But when you come to a defining moment, you have got to make a decision and it will expose who you are. It will show the world, everyone around you, who you are, whose you are, whom you will serve. Everyone will see it in that moment, who you go to for security, for rest, for refuge, for comfort, for joy, for purpose, for meaning, for satisfaction in life. It will all be out there for everyone to see. So how do you respond in a moment when there's a defining moment in your life? In verses 15 to 17, we see what happens with Esther. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Now they're already fasting, but this is different. Tell them to hold a fast on my behalf, she said. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. This is, a, this is an all-in fast. Most fasting might have been done during the day, very similar to what happens in Islam for Ramadan, where they fast during the day and they eat at night. She's saying all day, all night, three days. No food, no drinking. Then I will go into the king, though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything Esther had ordered him. Esther chose to die to herself and act in faith. That's why she called a fast. 
It's a very abrupt kind of change that we see that she makes. And the remaining parts of the book, the remaining chapters of the book detail how she goes into the king and how God providentially protects and preserves his people and defeats their, their enemies. Her fast demonstrates that she is no longer depending on her own resources or on herself. She is fully depending on God. She throws herself on God's mercy. If I perish, I perish. Understand this though, that, that's not some kind of defeatist statement. It's not, it's not a statement of resignation. It's actually faith in action when she says that. You need to realize if you read through the first three and four chapters of, of the book of Esther, you're going to see something interesting. Up to this point, all the action is happening to Esther. Mordecai is giving the commands and she's getting in line. But now it's changed. This is a woman who has decided to die to herself and act in faith. Now she's giving the commands and Mordecai, her cousin, is following her direction. In his book, Hunger for God, John Piper wrote this. I love this. The root of Christian fasting is the hunger of homesickness for God. That means we will do anything and go without anything if by any means we might protect ourselves from the deadening effects of innocent delights and preserve the sweet longings of homesickness for God. After five or six years of concealing her identity as one of God's people, after five or six years of living in compromise, do you think that Esther's heart was homesick for God? Do you think her soul was hungry for God? Maybe you feel like that right now. Homesick for him. Fasting does not work like a spiritual hunger strike, by the way. You, you can't compel God to do anything by calling a fast. Fasting doesn't change God's hearing, but it shapes our praying. It shapes our asking. When was the last time you fasted and prayed and asked God for direction? We should do that. When you face a defining moment, if you have time, and we don't always have time, sometimes it happens in a moment, over lunch, you're having lunch with a coworker or some coworker, it doesn't always happen like that, but when you have time, fast and pray. Jesus didn't say if you fast, he said when you fast. It's actually an expectation for disciples of Christ to fast. We ought to lean into it. When was the last time you heard the, the word fasting even mentioned in church, in any church? It's not very fashionable. But it's a spiritual discipline. And through it, we experience the grace of God. And so when you face a defining moment and you have time, fast and pray. And ask yourself some questions. I, I gave us some questions uh, to think through. If you want to take a picture of the screen, it might help you to, to remember them. But you can ask things like, God, why did you put me in this neighborhood with these neighbors at this particular time? God, why did you give me this job in this company with these particular coworkers at this season in this company's life or in this season in my coworkers' lives? Why do you have me here with them right now, God? God, why did, you, uh, why did you cross my path with that person the other day at Safeway or at Fry's? God, why did, why did our paths cross at the ball game the other night and we have this conversation? God, why did, you, why did you cross my paths with that person? God, is there some way that you want me to speak into their life? Is there some way you want to use me in their life? God, not everybody in the room is from America, right? God, why did you bring me to this country? Why did you bring me to this nation? How, how does faithfulness to you look right now in this moment, in this place, God. Fast and pray. Bring those questions to him. When you fast, you're saying to God, God, I am hungry for you more than anything else. 
I'm hungry for you more than anything else. God, I can do without many things, but I cannot do without you. And I need you, and I need your direction. Please show me from your word which way you want me to go. All the fasting in the world would not save the Persians, would not save the Jews in Persia. They needed a mediator. They needed somebody to go before the king. They needed somebody to go where they could not go. Esther had to act. And she didn't have any explicit promises from God that she would be protected. Realize that. There was no voice from heaven. There was no burning bush. Her only choice was to die to herself and act in faith. And when you face a defining moment, listen to this. When you face a defining moment, you don't need to know the outcome in advance. You only need to trust and obey your king. Esther interceded on behalf of her people. How much more do we need someone to intercede on our behalf before God, who is the great king? This morning, as a church family, we take the Lord's Supper together. That's the bread and the cup. And the men can go ahead and and go ahead and get that prepared in the trays, guys, if you would, please. But I want you to know something. That God is nothing like King Ahasuerus. He's not capricious. He's not impulsive. Our God is faithful and wise and loving and good and holy and just. That's the kind of ruler he is. But our sins make it impossible for us to go into his presence uninvited. That would mean death. But God, the same God, has provided a mediator for us, and his name is Jesus. He is the better mediator. Becoming our mediator didn't require the possibility of his death. It required the certainty of it. The certainty of it. Tim Keller writes this, Esther saved her people in two ways, identification and mediation. Does that remind you of anyone? Jesus didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish. Just hang on to it for one more moment, guys. Esther would not be safe in the palace, and we are not safe outside of Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, no human being is safe from the wrath of God against sin because we are all sinners The wages of sin is death. And we need someone to intervene on our behalf. We need someone who has lived the life we could not live and who has died our death in our place. And that one is Jesus. The Apostle Paul said, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There aren't many ways to God. There aren't many paths to find forgiveness and cleansing of our sins. There is only one, and it is through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ and trusting alone in him. He is our mediator. He is our only refuge. And in Christ, we can find the presence of God and enter into it and find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at his right hand. What do you need to do to experience that? You need to turn. You need to die to yourself. You need to repent of your sin. And give up on your own ways of doing things and trust fully in God's mediator, in his savior for us, in Jesus. And so we're gonna pass the elements in just a moment, the bread and the cup. And these are for those of you who are believers in Christ. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's an expression of your faith in Christ. When you take the bread and you take the cup, you are renewing, as it were, your commitment to follow Jesus. You're, you're, you're really demonstrating and acting out your relationship to him that you know has come because of his sacrifice for you. And so it's for those of you who are believers in Christ. 
If you're not, just like you heard uh, Tiffany say earlier, you know, moms and dads, you might have to do a little gospel explanation with your kids in the pews this morning. This isn't a snack, it's a supper. And we've been invited into the presence of the king to take it. It's a weighty thing, we come by faith to do that. So guys, go ahead and, and pass it and I'll direct the congregation to take it here in just a moment. I want you to know that there's only been one perfect person that God has ever used to accomplish his purposes. And for the rest of his agenda, God has used imperfect people. God uses our daily, thank you, Bob. He uses our daily, ordinary obedience to accomplish his plans and his purposes according to his providence and his sovereignty. And so as we get ready to take the bread and the cup, I hope that this story from Esther can give you some hope it's a difficult story, but there's meant to be some hope in it. You should see what she did right, and you should do that. When you face a defining moment, you should come to the place where you die to yourself and you act in faith, trusting God for his glory and ultimately for your good. Allow what Jesus said to turn it on its head for you, what you gain and what you lose. But you, will, you should also see that when there's been a season of faithlessness in your life, it's not too late to turn and to come home. And if your heart and your soul are homesick for God, do it today, in this moment. You don't have to be permanently disqualified to be used by God. There is grace. There's forgiveness. There's cleansing. Because of the symbols that we have here before us, because of his body and his blood. And so as you look at the, at the bread and the cup, as we prepare to take these elements, why don't you just take a few moments and pray. Just bow your heads and close your eyes there as you prepare your heart for this. And let me just kind of guide you maybe just a bit for this. Because maybe you should pray this morning and confess that there's been compromise in your life. And it could have been out of any number of reasons, but perhaps it was out of fear. Perhaps you were very misguided and thought you wanted this or that or you could find joy or satisfaction in this or that and, and it was a compromise. And you've heard the words of Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my soul. I'm forfeiting my whole self. And that's not the life he intended for me to live. Confess any compromise in your life. Pray and confess the ways in which you have concealed your faith and covered it up and remained quiet when you should have spoken up. And brothers and sisters, all of us need to toe the line there. I'm not talking about being some big Bible-thumping, waving kind of Christian with a placard on your shoulders, screaming through a bullhorn. But in the ordinary, everyday conversations you have with your workmates and your classmates, with your friends on the team, there come those moments and we know them and we can speak up and we have to confess this morning that we haven't and we've hidden in plain sight and we've concealed our faith would you ask him before we take the bread and the cup to make you hungry and thirsty for righteousness again pray for the grace to die to yourself and act in faith in the face of that defining moment. Pray for the grace to live by the convictions 
of the scriptures and the direction of the spirit in your life as a follower of Christ in your workplace, at school, with your neighbors. And as we take the bread and the cup, give thanks because of what he's done for you. Because in Christ, you are his sons and his daughters. And he has cleansed your heart and he has forgiven you. He's brought you close to fill you, to satisfy you, and to send you out into the world for his glory and your good. Father, we thank you this morning for this bread that we hold in our hands, unleavened bread, a symbol of the sinless body of Jesus that he laid down on our behalf. He who had no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We thank you for the bread this morning. In Jesus' name, let's take the bread. And Father, we thank you for this cup. We believe the truth that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And we are grateful this morning for the blood of Jesus that covers us and cleanses us and gives us life. We thank you, as David said earlier, that his blood has become ours. We have been brought into a new spiritual family. We have been born again because of the blood of Christ. And we are grateful for that this morning. Thank you. I pray that we would have the grace to live as those who have been bought and purchased by the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, we take the prop.